Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org podcasts. It is a big thing to teach God's Word, and if people hang back, maybe that's not a bad thing, because if really there's a gift there, it'll burst out. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. This is the audio series for people who read and study the Bible because you love the Bible. We love the Bible, but we're not just reading it for a bit of inspiration for ourselves for the day. Instead, when we read and study the Bible, we want to deeply understand the Bible. We want to get the big picture of the message of the Bible. In fact, we want to own what we're reading so that we can give it out to others so that we can teach it to others. And we want to teach it uh, creatively, effectively, and most of all, we want to teach it rightly in a way that brings the glory to God that he deserves. Today, I am in London, England, in the offices of someone who has, I don't know, trained a lot of people to capably teach the Bible. I'm sitting down with Dick Lucas in the Proclamation Trust offices Dick, I am so grateful that you would be willing to sit down with me and help all those that listen to to help us teach the Bible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Some of the people who may listen to this may not be familiar with your name. I think I first became familiar with your name by listening to Tim Keller sermons, and he kept mentioning Hmm. this person who had helped him so much, Dick Lucas, And then I think it was when I was teaching in Genesis, I found a series of your sermons on the story of Joseph (laughs) that I found so very helpful and then uh, began to download sermons uh, from the Gospel Coalition as well as from the Proclamation Trust website. Um, And so you are... You were the rector of St. Helens Bishop's Gate for 37 years. I understand when you first came to that church, there were like 10 people is that right? I think that's about it. Um, mostly in the choir, singing to the <laughs> organist's wife who stood patiently in the congregation. In this. <laughs> so how old were you at that point? I was 35. Yes. And so what was, what was it like? What was your ministry like there at the beginning of St. Helens? I didn't. I, it's a strange thing to say, but I didn't actually come for the Sunday service in particular. Uh, I'd been asked by a group of Christian businessmen to start a gospel service in the week because there was very little. Uh, Masses of churches in the city, but most of them closed on Sunday. Uh, Like any medieval city, there are always masses of churches. Of course, in the city of London, they're really not needed. But St. Helens was still open, and it's a wonderfully large church, and so it was a great opportunity for a gospel service. And that's why these men asked me, and I was appointed to... St. Helens, this church, and really gave my first energy, not to the Sunday, though we had a little tiny Sunday service, but to the Tuesday. And that's where the 
energy was right at the beginning for the first two or three years. And then gradually the Sunday morning grew, but only, I think, in a small way. Nobody lives in the city of London. Uh, there are a lot of students around, so we had them. And gradually we had a morning service and then an evening service, especially for students. But it was Tuesday that drew me there. And am I right, uh, when I went to St. Helens, it's right in the middle of the financial district, That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so on Tuesday, who were you drawing to that service? Well, yes, it's in an extraordinary position. I used to say that Jack Nicholas, who was a great golfer in those days, could hit every major financial institution with a couple of shots. <laughs> and so it was strategic from that point of view, and still is, although a great deal of people have gone down to Dockland now to build even larger skyscrapers. Uh, the city is still the financial centre. So my successor has wonderful opportunities with these enormous buildings they're putting up uh, in the lunch hour when people can come in. Though nowadays, people work right through the lunch hour. You don't mm-hmm. always have the opportunity we had in my day when everybody came out in the lunch hour. So were you drawing primarily Christian believers who wanted a little Bible study? Uh, the I think our, some of our critics said that the people who came were all Christians. I think that probably was impossible since we had about 400 coming in the lunch hour. And so I think people looked through the door and they saw only men. It was very much a man's thing in those mm-hmm. days. Uh, nowadays there are plenty of capable women in the city, but in those days it was very much a man's world. Uh, very much a you know suit and umbrella and bowler hat kind of world, <laughs> and to see a church full reassured many youngsters that they could cross the threshold, mm. when probably they'd never cross it again apart from being married and buried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was a tremendous opportunity, and people crowded in for many years. So I'm wondering about your approach to teaching the Bible. Then, if you knew that you had a good number of those people who I don't know, were they biblically illiterate or had they learned little Bible even if they had not embraced Christ? I suppose people knew more residual truth uh, then in 1961 than they do now. Today they'd be completely ignorant, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is slightly different. But uh, no, I think on the whole they were not, not, they didn't know the gospel. Um, It was, I've always called it teaching evangelism. You can't make a Billy Graham appeal every Tuesday for 35 years, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, especially if people are going to come back. So what was your approach? Uh, So I would call it teaching evangelism. That is, the gospel was always at the center, but it was teaching. They opened up their Bibles and you worked through a text? Um, I can't remember whether we had Bibles at first. Uh, Probably we didn't. It's quite difficult with 400 people to get Bibles without them being all over the place. Um, the chairs weren't really made for that in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yes, I suppose in the end there were Bibles. You know, I can't remember that, isn't it? I have no memory you know, at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you <laughs> ask me questions that I can't really tell. But were you with. working through a series in I a book? I would do a series of five, four or five every month, according okay. to the Tuesdays in that month. Mm-hmm. I, I reckon that was just about uh, uh, right, because even then we were living in a mobile world, so that someone would come on Tuesday, the first Tuesday of the month, but would be in America for the next two Tuesdays, mm-hmm. doing business. And so if you start Jeremiah and go on for three years, as some people <laughs> with very little common sense do, then uh, people are going to leave you fairly soon and stay away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a month at a time we did. I'm not saying that's the way now for everybody, but it was the way for us then. Yes. So tell us about the Proclamation Trust, because at some point you founded an organization many may have heard of, the Proclamation Trust, and then in the States they may fam- be familiar with the Simeon Trust, yes, indeed, which do. is uh, somewhat similar and yes. comes out of the Proclamation Trust. Yes. So uh, help 
for someone who has never heard of it, <laughs> what is it and why is it? Well, uh, it started in the early 80s when somebody who'd been on our staff um, called together about 20 of his friends, all in full-time ministry, all in Bible ministry. And we went down to our conference center. At that time, St. Helens had its own conference center and uh, asked me to lead it. <laughs> and it was extraordinary. It was just a wonderful two days when, in a quite special way, God was with us. And we realized that as we each made a presentation on a verse or a passage or a text, uh, we were getting it all wrong. Hmm. And uh, I, from the chair, I had to keep saying, well, Bill, that was great, but it actually isn't what the Bible is saying. <laughs> <laughs> These were fellow pastors yeah, you were that's speaking right. to? Well, they were all friends, so yes. that, uh, it was possible to do that. Yeah. And I, I, we all, at w- with one accord, began to realize how difficult it is, actually, not to impose one's thoughts on the text rather than expose what is there. So that was the beginning, and those men have been meeting ever since to some extent. They're getting old and gray-haired and retired now, of course. Mm-hmm. But they meet, some of those elders still meet every other year, and I, get, I usually go and speak um, mm-hmm. amongst others. So from that, uh, I suppose that went on for a few years, I'm meeting that group. And then the church here became interested in what I was doing. And when I'd been here 25 years, I said to the elders, the wardens, I said, I don't want a teapot at my 25th anniversary a silver teapot, uh, I'd quite like something to put this on a financial basis. And as they were businessmen, they were generous and good at that, and they formed a proper organized basis of Proclamation Trust. Uh, Mm. He was especially concerned, Mm. and another man as well. And we started then with an office and a secretary. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the conferences grew because people needed this kind of thing, and it's grown ever since to what it is today. So that's how it all started, quite informally. Mm-hmm. I think some of the best things that God does are not planned by us. They just arise from mm-hmm. a need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to meet that need, God blesses it. We we never had great plans. We didn't want to be famous. We just wanted to understand the Bible and not make fools of ourselves when we expanded it. Mm-hmm. How would you explain the uniqueness, the unique approach in terms of if I come to a proclamation trust conference, how am I going to learn to teach or approach Scripture differently than perhaps somewhere else I might go? I don't think essentially it's different. Um, I I haven't been to the conferences for some time. Of course, they've developed in all sorts of different ways. Uh, We now have one, of course, for women workers. We have one for the wives of ministers who are often uh, often need the encouragement. They're always absolutely packed out, so that shows a need that arose much later. No, I don't think there's anything special. Especially the workshops are important when people come prepared to share what they've discovered in the Word of God and are treated uh, toughly. That is, the chairman of the group doesn't say, oh, yes, how wonderful, the Lord has helped you. Um, When I was young in evangelical circles, there was a tendency if you gave a talk for people to say, oh, the Lord is with you and thank you very much and so on. That's not very much help to a younger man. I think it may go back in some ways to the holiday camps where I first heard the gospel. Uh, I then later on, after I'd done my national service in the Navy, came back to help to be a leader in those uh, holiday camps. And uh, our leader then, who was a unique person really in some ways, um, would critique you when you gave a talk to the the lads. Uh, They were originally for boys, now they're boys and girls. And uh, you've got a thorough dressing down if you hadn't done it properly. Mm. Now, the 
that's normal in the world, isn't it? But <laughs> yeah. it isn't in the church. And I think Proclamation Trust started just treating people sensibly as those who were prepared to take criticism and realize that they weren't getting it right instead of just saying, oh, the Lord was with you, which isn't very much help mm-hmm. and isn't always true. Mm-hmm. So it's just realism. Mm-hmm. Um, are we doing the job properly? I, you can't succeed anywhere in business unless you do the job properly. Mm-hmm. Why should you succeed in the church if you don't do the job properly? Well, it seems to me that in our day and age, a lot of people think, well, you know, you can go to the text and kind of whatever arises out of it that, you know, seems right to you, if it has some meaning and if it seems if it's what, how the Lord spoke to you from the text, yes, no, then not, that would be worthwhile. Are you saying that's not the no, case? that's not right. <laughs> no. Although God does speak to us, of course, from the text as we're working at it. Uh, but uh, preaching uh, is more than that, isn't it? It's what God is saying to all of us, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly correcting our thinking, isn't he? All the time. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, a dinghy, you know, the... The rudder is correcting it all the time, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so as you're reading the Bible, you're being corrected all the time Mm -hmm. as you keep on the main highway. So, yes, I hadn't thought of that, but I think it goes back really to that original experience as a young man where if you were asked to give a talk uh, to the young people, you were expected to work at it and you were told the next day, uh, well, you've done well and if you hadn't done well and what could have been better and what was... uh, uh, things that you were doing, like scratching your nose throughout the talk, which wasn't very helpful. You know, everything, <laughs> everything, mm-hmm. really being practical mm-hmm. and down to earth. And I think people find this really appealing. Mm-hmm. They want well, real it's scary. Help. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's scary. We do want to get better. We want to get better painlessly. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid it's not always without some pain. That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I'm so excited. I, I come from Nashville, Tennessee, right. and we're going to have our first Simeon Trust Women's workshop in a few months and so as i've been talking to women about coming it Mm. is this there's going to come a point where your work is going to be critiqued that's the part that makes people step back and go oh not sure about that yes once you've got used to it it does just take a little time to get used to it and it's got to be in the context of real friendliness and real fellowship hasn't it uh, what I tell them is you're sitting around the table, and the goal for all of us is to get a little bit better. That's right. And we can help each other That's do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you jumped into the cold swimming pool, you, yeah. you then don't it, feel it You longer. love swimming around. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, I tell you what, for our conversation today, uh, you know, our podcast is aimed at helping people become better at handling the scriptures right. and teaching the Bible. And usually we're talking through an entire book of the Bible. Um, but since I know that there are so many people who have learned so much from you about how to rightly teach the scriptures, I think I'd like to talk with you today more about the character and commitments of, of a Bible teacher. So I want to start by talking a little bit about just coming to the place that you're willing to teach, um, how would you identify, if someone came to you and said, I think I want to teach the Bible, I want to hear a little bit from you about how you might quiz them to know whether or not they are the right person to do that, if there is such, how, they're go- how they should go about preparing. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about then your own uh, approach when you're going to the text. I know you're still 
preaching and teaching. So when you go to a text, I also heard you always throw away your notes and start fresh. <laughs> and I got to talk to you about that. Okay. So if you're always starting fresh sim- in the text, how no, do you do that? No, that's simply because I'm entirely incompetent and I don't know how to file. <laughs> I don't believe it, but we'll go on. Uh, And then um, I do want to talk a little bit about the delivery. What are the things you think uh, are quite often hold people back from being effective teachers in simply the delivery? So why don't we just start back there at the beginning in terms of if if I came to you at St. Helens and I said, you know, I've been coming here for a while and I see people up there teaching and I think I want to do that. How would you respond to me? Well, notice that you made the presupposition that I know them. They've been coming to church. I think that's all important, isn't it? Uh, What happens in the denominations is that people go to the authorities and say they want to preach. Uh, They might then go to a weekend course and be passed as okay and go to a college and go through without anybody really examining both their life and their ability, just that they get a degree, Mm-hmm. and then they're launched out into the church. Now, that's an exaggerated way of putting it, but there's too much of that. Uh, so I'm glad you started with the fact that I know the person, and that will make all the difference in the world, won't it? I know whether they're the sort of person who's going on an ego trip or whether they're a person with a genuine desire to pass on what they've got. What's the difference between that? Can, can, do you think you can see that in people, or what do you look for to decide Well, I'd that? also, of course, <laughs> I would ask other people. Yes. I would ask them. other people. You know, the, in the articles of the Church of England, it says we're called by men to go into the Lord's vineyard, which is a very striking thing. You never hear that said. You hear about God calling, but the reformers said that man calls as well, that in other words, God calls through man calling. And uh, men won't call unless they're fairly persuaded a person is able to do it, and their character also supports it. So... Your answer really is that it's because I would know them and other people would know them that it would give me a clue as to whether I'd want to encourage them. If you ask me for one char- characteristic, I think it would not be a hunger to teach, it would be a hunger to learn. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, that is in the long run what is going to make someone who's useful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You can be hungry to teach for quite the wrong motives, but you've got a hunger to learn and to become a student now, I don't mean by that going to theological college. There's no need to get a PhD to, before you actually tell people about the love of God. But you do need to be a reader. So, for example, when I was at university, a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, it was a mission led by Dr. Barnhouse. No one would have heard of him now, but he was a great American teacher. <laughs> oh, we know of him. And <laughs> a very blunt preacher. It was a great mission in Cambridge University. Um, church was packed. All the sportsmen came out, people like that you never expected to hear because Barnhouse would be very blunt and told everybody they were sinners, which is quite, quite rare now, even in missions. And this guy was wonderfully converted. Uh, he inherited a fruit farm from his family and was a fruit grower throughout his life. But when I would visit him, I would find his little tiny study that... Uh, It was packed with Christian books and commentaries and every conceivable help that he could find because he was a lay preacher and just helped wherever he could. And if I searched his study, I don't think you could find a book on growing fruit. (laughs) Of course, he was an expert, but, I mean, that was handed on from father and uh, and, uh, he knew all there was to know about growing apples. You didn't need to know an enormous, largely experienced, but it struck me very much when I used to go and call on him that he was better equipped than many of the clergy around and more hungry to learn. 
uh, he's now with Christ, but uh, for a long time after his retirement, for example, he was speaking and helping many small causes all around the place in the country where you don't necessarily get full-time preachers at all. So it was just an illustration for me that here was a man who throughout his life, although he was having to earn his living, bring up his family and all the rest of it, had this great hunger, and his study showed it. Wow. Yeah, so if if I think I want to teach, and, and why don't I speak more at this point about maybe I'm a woman in the church, <laughs> which yeah. I am, of course, a woman in the church. Um, so I'm not going to put myself out necessarily going to pastoral college, pastoral ministry. I am a learner, right? Yeah. But I'm kind of quiet. So maybe nobody knows that I have this gift. Mm-hmm. Maybe I even think, well, all those people up front, they're, you know, they've got such personality or whatever. I'm not sure I have those gifts. Should I, what do I do? Do I approach my pastor and say, I want to teach? Do I just wait for someone to come and say, you should teach? Well, I see no harm in your going up to your pastor and saying that, but I would rather put the thing entirely the other way around. It seems to me that it's the job of the pastor to be looking for the ministry of people in the congregation. I would say the church and the elders, the wardens, whatever you like to call them, ought to be looking for people who have this hunger, but especially a hunger to learn and therefore to pass on what they've learned. A hunger to tell other people about Christ is a natural result of conversion, isn't it? But this goes further. It's a hunger to go further and say what it all means, how we can grow and so on. Mm-hmm. You ought to be looking for teachers in the congregation. I talk to some people, and they they have that sense. Maybe they've even been asked. But there's a. it seems to me that there's a, a tricky balance or a tension in that we want people to teach who have such a high view of God's word. Uh, Isaiah says we should tremble before his word, right? So we have such a high view of his word that we do want to to teach it rightly. It scares us that we might actually mishandle and misuse God's word. But I suppose sometimes that fear can keep someone, they, they perhaps thinking, well, before I teach, I have to know more. I have to get more figured out. What would you say yeah, to that person no, who feels a, some fear of doing it wrongly? Yes, that's a very proper fear, isn't it, actually? Uh, and the reformers would say that very much, that it takes time, doesn't it? If you don't have the time, then you probably ought not at that moment to be thinking of doing a great teaching ministry. It does take time. So the mother with her children has got to realize that's not going to be, for the moment, her responsibility. You know, it's like the woman who wrote to Gypsy Smith, an old-fashioned evangelist of long ago, and said she wanted to speak, but she had ten children. And he wrote back and said he was delighted the Lord had called her to teach and delighted that the Lord had given her a congregation. <laughs> now, that's very sensible, isn't it? In other words, uh, she, ha- she, she had a teaching ministry. She ought to be encouraged in that teaching ministry and not suppose that just changing diapers was the only thing she could do in life. But uh, uh, that was a real teaching ministry. But to suppose she could then go out to teach other women, probably beyond reality and practicality, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I think the reformers are right to say that it's, it is a big thing to teach God's word. And if people hang back, maybe that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Because if really there's a gift there, it'll burst out. But that could certainly be that learning time, couldn't it? I uh, certainly right? could. Because it's if a, you said what, what makes a good teacher is someone who's a learner. That's right. There's always time to learn. I feel that very learn. strongly. You remember Billy Graham 
to whom we owe a great deal in this country, uh, used to say, oh, I think he's still, is he still alive, bless his mm-hmm. heart, that if he started again, he'd study more. I think that's very revealing if a great man like that says that. That's mm-hmm. a challenge to all of us, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Well, speaking of studying more, um, why don't you share with us, if you would, I don't know, maybe you'd want to pick a text or maybe you just want to talk more in general Help us understand your own method. I mean, everybody goes about this differently. And yeah. can we – wouldn't you say that you don't need to follow someone others, someone else's method in terms of how to study? Or are there some essentials that, boy, if you're going to study the Bible in a way that you want to give it out rightly, these things have to be a part of it? Yeah. Yes, I can only say a few things. Uh, we are individuals, aren't we? The first thing to say is we've got to learn to know ourselves and our own situation. As to what, that's what I meant about the mother of ten children. She's got to know her situation. But if it is clear to the congregation and to the pastor and to you yourself that uh, you are in a position now when you could teach others, and you've got the time to do so, the time to study, and you've got a measure of gift, I think that's quite important, isn't it? Um, that little word apt to teach yes. comes in the pastoral epistles in each of the letters, 1, 2, Timothy, and Titus. There's just got to be some aptitude. So if the other Christians recognize that you've got the time, children have grown up, whatever it, whatever it is, then you need to know yourself. Uh, for me, I'm hopeless in the evenings. I'm a morning man. So I get up early. Some people can. Some people can't. I can't work in the evening. I simply fall asleep in the chair. That's what, that's what I mean. You know, it's like eating, isn't it? Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to use the phrase, the old phrase, Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean. We are all different, aren't we? Our metabolism is different. I've got to know myself and know my opportunity. I've got to have to find quiet uh, and so on. I, I, I need the tools of the trade. I need to learn how to study. I may need to help others. And examples of others are a great help, aren't they? I probably learned more at those camps than I ever learned at a theological college. Mm. By listening to others teach? Is that what you mean? Yeah, because at a theological college, you know, it's often rudely said and quite wrongly said as, uh, in, in every case, but often the people teaching in theological colleges are the people who actually can't do it on the ground. Now, they actually go to the college because they're good at teaching you what you need is some theology. It's very naughty of me to say it, and I'll get at least half a dozen letters complaining of saying this, if you record me. But it's true that uh, I was taught I was taught in th- two years at a theological college what navigators of Campus Crusade would have taught me in a couple of weeks in terms of practical prayer, pastoring, teaching. Um, because that's not really their job. I think that's fair to say. Well, whose job is it then? Uh, it should be those who are already doing it to teach those who want to do it. Well, let's get down to the text anyhow. In short order, let me tell you what I do. I mean, it really isn't very, it's not. Um, it's not complicated. It's not PhD stuff. <laughs> Good. All right? Let's get that clear. Because <laughs> maybe now I, I can learn it. Need, I don't even need to know Greek. Hooray, hooray, oh, hooray. Oh, I'm glad for that. Yeah. No, 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 I, don't need to, I don't need to feel it because I can't do that. I can't teach the English Bible. First, what does the text actually say? Secondly, what significance has this for the world, church, everybody, me, mm-hmm. my next-door neighbor? Three, how can I get that into order? So let's just flesh those out. Okay. 
First, what does the text actually say? <laughs> and it's astonishing when you get down to it how often you've missed most of it. Because we naturally impose on the text all that we've learned hitherto. So that takes time, and I'll give an example in a moment. Then I have to ask myself, what is the significance of that? Um, the Bible not only is its own interpretation, as Jim Packer has often said, but the Bible also has within it its own application. I don't have to mm. think those up. I don't have to tag those on at the end. Mm. It's there in the text, how it should be applied. So often you get the sermon, mm -hmm. and then the pastor quickly says, how do I apply that? And there are three morals for the congregation, mm -hmm. which are quite useless because they have nothing to do with the text. And mm. it turns the sermon into a kind of moralizing. And then thirdly, how can I get this in order? I think the outline is very, very important. We all know people who do it badly just putting pegs and hanging their stuff on it. But I think getting a really good outline orders your mind and enables the listener to get some kind of order in their mind. Are you talking about an outline of the text itself or an outline of what your, your talk is going to be, or should those be the they, same they thing? They should be the same thing. They should be the same thing. In other words, it's almost you've got to control. I don't mean this wrongly. You've got to get the text under control. What is it saying in some kind of coherent order? There is a message in it. Then I need to have some idea of how that applies because it's in the text. Then I need to get that in order so that I am coherent and clear. The one supreme need of the speaker is clarity. Clarity, clarity, and clarity. And so I only recently actually have been saying to the younger ministers, spend time on your order. It's not a secondary matter because it shows whether you really understood the passage. Okay? So let me give just a, 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 a obvious um, examples. Um, John 3.16, all right? John 3.16. Right. Incidentally, I tell the young man, says, I can produce a hack sermon on any verse in the Bible in 20 minutes. <laughs> so let's put that aside. We're not going to do that. Okay. So we're going to look at John 3.16 and realize that most people can preach a dull talk on that. Hmm. But it isn't dull at all, is it? So I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be asking questions of the text, and I'm going to suppose that everything is really quite astonishing if you really come at it freshly first. God so loved the world. Oh, by the way, I pulled off my shelf the commentary I bought last year on John. It'll probably be Don Carson, and that's quite enough for anybody, okay? I have that one too. I right. love it. Good. Okay. <laughs> and I find that Don teaches that superbly well. Then normally in John's Gospel, God loves only his own people and his son. Once only, he says, he loves the world. So it's an exceptional thing to say because the world always stands for a world in rebellion against him. Uh, I just jot down in my notes there. I ought probably to say something about the reason the world is in the state it is. It's because it's full of rebels. Mm. And therefore, if we go to war against God, we'll go to war against one another. I may not have time to say that. One of the things I've got to learn as a young speaker is that when I go into the pulpit, if I'm, an, if I'm a full-time minister, I've got to leave at least two-thirds of what I found in the study behind. Otherwise, That's a hard be, part of it, isn't it? It's a very hard lesson mm. to learn. Most of the treasure will be left behind because mm. I've got a message which concentrates on what is the main thing, okay? So, God so loved the world, that's astonishing. He gave his only son. So this is a unique statement. 
application. I'll pop down on a piece of paper. Maybe I'll have time for it. Christianity, therefore, must be the only way. Because God had only one son. This is going to be very important, isn't it? Depending on the congregation, the people I'm speaking to, the ladies' group, that'll instantly raise hackles today, won't it, that there's mm. only one way. That whoever believes, the stress on belief is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I just happen to have a, a commentary by a bloke called Ridderboss as well, and he points out how in those next verses, 17, 18, 19, again and again we get, you've got to believe. So there is something I've got to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some places you go to, uh, chapels that I've spoke to that are so reformed, nobody's asked to do anything ever. So I may- maybe spend five minutes saying, have you actually ever put your trust? Now, to go on saying that every week in a church will be a bore. But if I'm doing John 3.16, I can't avoid it, Okay. And so we go on. Mm-hmm. Shall not perish. Well, that's all unheard of today. Nobody mentions it, really. It's not quite done, is it? Mm-hmm. In fact, how do you preach on hell when nobody has any conviction of sin? So I put that down in my notes. I have to think, am I going to say something about that? Eternal life. <laughs> nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> because in John's Gospel, it's life that begins now. So why do you know you're going to heaven? Well, because I'm already experiencing eternal life. I put that down on my notes. And I've got an awful lot of stuff there, haven't I? I've got enough there for five talks. So what am I going to say? That's when I have to say, I can see the application, the endless applications there. I've got to get this under control. Otherwise, the whole thing's going to be a complete muddle. Uh, One lady in the group's going to sidetrack us a quarter of an hour unless I've got the whole thing under control. So I bring people back to the basic questions I'm asking. So I just did this at breakfast this morning. I mean, you could do it a hundred ways. It's so useful to do it a hundred ways, to clear, to get your mind used to being clear. Mm-hmm. So I just put this down uh, after breakfast this morning. I'm going to tell you three things that nobody understands today. Now, they're immediately interested, aren't they? Mm-hmm. One, nobody understands God's love. It's a love for those who are completely unlovely. Mm. You got that yourself? No, of course you haven't. Two, nobody understands the future. Their future, sorry, their future. Mm. Nobody realizes they're on the way either to heaven or hell. They don't give it a thought. And if you mention it, they would say they don't believe it. But they are, whether they like it or not. Thirdly, nobody understands the uniqueness of Christianity. I mentioned that just now. Mm. Or here's another threesome, the reason for the state of the world, the reason why Jesus came, the reasons why Christians can be sure. Now, actually, there's too much there, isn't there? So with my young men, I say, look, you've got far too much there. You've got to chisel it away in the study until you're clear what they can carry in one talk, what is enough to discuss in a ladies' group. Then get really clear on that and keep people to it. That's not complicated. It's not PhD stuff. It's common sense, isn't it, Mm -hmm. actually? Mm -hmm. Being ruthless with oneself Mm -hmm. so that everyone is clear at the end of the half hour why they were there Mm -hmm. and what the text is talking about. I just want to say it is simple as long as we're willing to work at it like that. Tell me, what part would context, you're taking one verse, you know, you're not teaching through a large passage, but of course this verse 
well, is well, set context. in a context. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. set in the context of John three. It's set in the context of John. It's <laughs> set in the context of the New Testament. It's set in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, of but of course, we can't do that in every talk either. So no, we, we can't. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, and if you do that in every talk, everybody will groan, won't they? <laughs> context is all important, of course. And in John 3, you get the three great themes of John that come constantly, but I won't go into that now. Let's do the parable of the sower. And these are very simple, isn't it? Because I I sometimes set younger men who think they're above this kind of thing with very simple things to do. If you can do the simple things well, you may do the difficult things better. Right, the sower. So what am I going to be listening to on Sunday morning? Because the assistant curate has been asked to preach on the sermon. I know what I'm going to hear. I'm going to hear that same old sermon about the four different soils. Aren't I? I'm almost guaranteed. If I was a betting man, I'd say 100 to 1. Okay? But it's not what the thing is about. What is the context? The context is about the word being sown. All three parables are saying, in terms of the context, one main thing, which is that there's going to be a harvest that everything is against you. There's this shallow person where it just falls on the ground and they don't even look at it. There's this guy who's got far too much to do in business ever to do more than one Tuesday in 20 and therefore he's never going to get anywhere, and so on. So that's just one of the many things against you. But what chapter 4 is saying in, in Mark is, go on with the word. It's invisible. It's veiled because the whole Christian revelation is veiled. God is in Christ. No one looking at that man would think God was there. No one listening to Miss Snooks teaching her children and teaching them the word that nothing is going to happen from it. But what is going to happen one day is colossal because God has promised that this strange power, once it gets into the heart, the heart and the word are made for one another in God's eternal providence. So once this word gets into the heart and really gets in, that's where teaching comes in. You've got to get it in, and it's sown properly, like the farmer. The result will be this massive crop. Isn't that encouraging? That chapter's meant to be encouraging. So it's quite legitimate to preach on the four soils, but in the context, you see, it's quite different. So I'm willing to preach on the four soils, but I want to say to the minister, this, uh, this passage is really for you. Is to tell you that because there are these four people in the congregation who are never going to bear fruit, or the three of them, there is nevertheless going to be a harvest. Don't be discouraged because after the sermon, somebody came up to you and said, Oh, Mr. Lucas, I did like your accent. <laughs> and you go back home and you, say, you fall down and you say, mm-hmm. That was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a waste of time. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. That's what the context is all about. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you. Okay, so you have you've gone to this verse and you've you've done something that uh, I think I do oftentimes, which you come up with numerous yeah. outlines, right? <laughs> right? Or or ways you could go about it, and and in the process of that, you are figuring out what is the main big idea. That's right. And then you're thinking about those you're going to be teaching. Yes. Right? Because um, so you you adjust that big main idea for what you want to get across to them. And then that almost sends you back to the outline then to figure out, okay, so how am I going to um, work oh, my way through true. this, right, to, to teach to them. 
You put it better than I can. All <laughs> that is true. Right. I don't then worry what? Too much. What do you do then? Yes, I don't worry too much about who's in the congregation, though of course I'm aware of that. I mean, I'm a human being. I know who's there. Uh, that's why the regular ministry is so valuable, of course, isn't it? And uh, you mm-hmm. ought to know the people you're speaking to. But whether I know Tom, Dick, and Harry, in a sense, is secondary, because the Bible is going to speak to them anyhow. Mm-hmm. I've got to have that confidence that uh, they're totally different people, but the Bible will nevertheless speak mm-hmm. to them all. Okay, so you've determined your outline. Yeah. Um, are you going to write out all your thoughts? Are you are you putting little points you're going to make? And, and at what point do you look either go to a commentary or listen to what someone else has done? Wait a minute. You're asking me too many questions. Okay. Let's start with writing and then the all commentaries. Right. Uh, I think the two extremes are probably impractical for most of us. That is writing everything out or not having any notes at all. I do know one or two bright sparks today who don't have any notes. I don't myself think it's wise. I think it's the middle way is probably for most of us, full written notes. I would recommend that to the younger men. I'm talking again about full-timers, but I would say even for a study group, having written out fairly full notes is, is, is the best way. Dr. Lloyd-Jones started, we're told, when he was a young man in Wales uh, with writing both his Sunday sermons within a few weeks he'd given it up, it was impossible to do. Writing right through is a very tough assignment, but it's a wonderful discipline. So I would say to men who, uh, and girls who are going to take this seriously that from time to time to write out your material fully is a terrific discipline, as writing does, as the great man said, make an exact man. So I always had fairly full notes. David Jackman's picture up on the wall, a wonderful teacher. He teaches from an almost full script on tiny little notes. But very few other people can do that. I wouldn't even be able to read the notes. But that's his way, and he does it superbly. Well, I think it's helpful to hear that, that there's not one way. No, there isn't. There isn't. Why I don't like no notes is this. I don't myself... Personally, like it if the man, in, for example, in the pulpit is speaking straight to me mm-hmm. without reference to the book. I want him openly mm-hmm. to be speaking tonk, tonk. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yes. That he's speaking through the word to me so that I know all the time that he's not just looking at me but that he's looking at me through this text. And all the time he's wrestling with the text and bringing it to me so that I know it's not his word but God's word. All the time I want that. Mm-hmm. So you can get, can't you, the popular preacher, you see him on television, and you wouldn't really know if it came from the Bible or not, would you, frankly? I mean, there's something that is attractive to you. I, I think, man, they just seem to own the place, they, right? right? And they're so smooth and so funny. But they've and got themselves out of, out, of, out of kilter, haven't they? They've got themselves out of kilter. And in the end, we don't appreciate it, actually. Well, there's a great temptation, isn't there, for self-proclamation? Mm-hmm. Let's go down to commentaries. I, I'm sluggish I, when I get up in the morning, and I'm an early riser because that's the only time my brain is working. I go pretty quickly to anything that can help me on my shelves. I know some people say you should spend half an hour working at the text yourself, and so you should. But I have to say for myself, I'm too weak. <laughs> 
and I just go to Doncaster and Rudabos <laughs> and I say, now, come on, guys. And then, it, then sometimes they don't answer the question I've got. Yes. What do you do then? Then, <laughs> then I'm stuck. <laughs> then I I'm, don't believe Then that. I'm wandering around the study. I kick the, do- the dog out to take his own walk. And I'm wandering around the study, and um, I'm looking to find anything to help me. I'll go anywhere for help. I might even walk across to the office of the Proclamation Trust because I'm hungry. I'm not going to give up until I find out what that is. But I do need help. And I, I think we're, we're, not, we're not told we've got to reinvent the wheel. And if these people can help me, I need their help. Talk to us a little bit about illustrations and story. Yeah. Is that a part of your teaching of the Bible? Is, is that just different people do it different ways? What are your yes, thoughts I about that? Yes, I do think different people do it different ways. Uh, it is helpful. It gives people rest time. It catches the attention of the sleepy. Yes, I do believe in illustrations. I think most of my advice to young ministers is negative. Um, don't try to be funny when you're not. Don't talk about your wife and your children. What my wife said to me this morning at breakfast was, nobody wants to know that. And, but you find a lot of people become chatty like that. So you want to keep your own home out of it, I say to young ministers. These are little negatives. But otherwise, if people have got a gift for illustrations, a gift for analogies, a gift for experience that they can tell, within reason, within reason, we need that help if we're going to listen. Do you think those are skills that can be developed? Yes, they can. They can. And I think we need honest friends who tell us when we're going the wrong way. Yeah, some of us are naturally good storytellers, That's and right. some of us just aren't. Uh, some of us aren't. <laughs> and I just wish we were more willing, you know. Someone came up to me uh, many years ago after a Tuesday service, and do you realize that you're doing that? <laughs> and you're scratching underneath your arm. Yeah. Okay. Now, I still today can't believe that I was doing that <laughs> in front of 400 men. <laughs> It seems grotesque, doesn't it? <laughs> Has it become a habit? Why? I can't imagine. Did I once have a gnat bite or something? Like that? <laughs> but how grateful I was for someone telling me. Yes. Uh, but we are terribly sensitive, mm-hmm. aren't we? Mm-hmm. Anybody who speaks has got to learn to have a little bit of a thick mm-hmm. skin. It really is helpful to have some trusted people who will give tell us something like that, yeah, isn't it? Even though it hurts to hear. It, it does hurt. Inevitably, it hurts. I must tell you, Dick, there's someone else <laughs> sitting at this table with us, which will go unnamed, but his name is David Guthrie. And um, he, last summer when I was teaching, uh, he, he said to me on the way home, do you realize how many times when you're teaching, you then look at everyone and say, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the, and I said, no, I don't think I do that at all. So the next week, he kindly uh, counted during my message, and we got in the car, and he said, do you realize, would you like to know how many times you said that? This is hard. 54. <laughs> I was not aware of one. No. Well, you listen to the ordinary youngster. For example, they all gabble, don't they? 
They all what? They all gabble. They all talk too fast. Oh, talk too fast. Okay. But it, it's true right across the civilized world, isn't it? If you hear a Frenchman or anybody else, they're all talking at a terrific rate today, which we weren't talking two generations ago. They've also got their own little things today, you know, and these things that come um, constantly. Now, these are small things, but our friends are helpful in telling us that, although it sometimes does hurt, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think also just when I, to listen to recordings or watch a video of myself, I mean, it's so painful. I don't want to do it because then I, I hear words I got wrong. Sometimes I, you know, I... I, I called someone in the text by the wrong name or the wrong place, mm. and, and it, I'm just, ugh, I agonize over it. And yet I do think it's those things that Bless help us heart. to become better. Bless your heart for saying it, because I have said to one or two young men, why don't you listen to your tape of your own? But I'm not sure they do. I think it would do them good, because you don't realize the pace you're going and other little tiny things like that that you will notice straight away. Talk to us about the other side of that, because I, I think sometimes when we teach, uh, we're finished, and we are hungry for feedback. Uh, we want to have, we want to walk away somehow with a tangible sense that what we just poured ourselves into, studying, right. preparing, giving out, setting right. it out there, that it was worthwhile to yes. someone, right. that it made an impact, and yet sometimes um, we don't know if it did. And also sometimes we're so discouraged by how we did. We wanted to be clear and we walk away and we think that wasn't clear at all. Um, I'm so glad how do you, you said deal that. with discouragement? No, I can't deal with that, you see, because I was just about to say it and you took the words out of my mouth and I'm so glad you did. Speaking is one of the most discouraging things on the earth. If you can't cope with discouragement, you'll never continue. Again and again, I've gone home feeling I've lost it and that nobody was really getting the point. And uh, you've got to deal with that. You mustn't fish for compliments. Um, I, I do think it's a very discouraging thing. First, you gain more confidence, of course. You gain more confidence in the word, and you gain more confidence if you've done the work properly. But even so... It's amazing how little people realize what you said, the work that's gone into it. He does, he does see to it that we don't get cocky. Mm-hmm. If you're a true teacher and you're really doing your job properly, you'll never, you'll never get proud mm-hmm. because uh, of these discouragements. I think the Lord makes that quite clear, really. The disciples were a failure all along the road. <laughs> but yet, what did they grow? The universal church. He uses weak things, and for that yeah, we're really grateful, right. aren't we? Well, that's right. You have to continue to remind yourself that it's out of weakness that God's power is. We want power, we want power to produce power. In fact, God produces power out of weakness, and that takes a lifetime to learn, and you never learn it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people give up, I think, honestly, because of discouragement. Mm-hmm. That's why we need each other so much. Mm-hmm. So I know, I do, I'm not a great critic. You know, I think sometimes when I'm sitting in church that the younger preachers think I'm sitting there critically making notes, you know. Well, that would be my fear if you were sitting there and I was <laughs> I'm teaching. Not. Are I'm you? not. No? no, I mean, it's what Lloyd-Jones said. I want something for my own soul. Uh-huh. 
Um, obviously, I may notice if he's doing this. <laughs> <laughs> he's scratching his underarms, yes. And mm. I might say, I might drop him a note to that effect. But I love to drop him a note and say that was just great because I, I was uh, encouraged today. Have you had plenty of experiences where you came down from teaching or preaching and you thought that was a mess? Oh Nobody could have gotten anything out of that. Yes. Oh but my. then find out later that <laughs> yes. the, the word actually did do its work as yes. God has promised it will do. I, tell the young, I try to tell the younger preachers that in the end it's worthwhile. But you know, God often works very slowly, isn't it? People don't tell you. But years later you discover what the word has done. That's why preaching is a matter of faith. You see, the Roman priest, in a sense, it's so simple, isn't it? Christ is there in the bread and wine, just gives it to a person in the morning, he's done his job. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt what's happened in his mind. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of automatic. I was brought up at school in that kind of thing, and you went to communion, that was that. No, no difficulty. Well, with us, you see, all that is subpersonal. Christianity is personal. I have to go from my mind to your mind, from my person to your person. And uh, that takes time because it's got to come into your mind. It's got to begin to influence the whole of you. It takes time in your life to work it out. It may be five years later that you realize that that word you heard was the thing that made all the difference. So I understand you just celebrated a 90th birthday. (laughs) I'm afraid so, yes. I saw some pictures of the (laughs) celebration. So... um, You've spent a lifetime now yes. um, investing yourself in teaching and preaching God's word, in developing capable teachers of God's word. I wonder if perhaps some who might be listening to this audio series uh, have have done some of it, but begin to wonder, is it worth it? Is a lifetime invested in this? Worth it. Yes. What yeah. would be your word to us? Oh, I think it's easier to say that when you're my age because you can see what has happened through it. But uh, you would never know that at the beginning. And so, you know, I've seen the growth of the Proclamation Trust. I realize that's something God wanted, but he brought it about. You know, he never allows us to get the glory. The man who organized the conference was not me. <laughs> and so often the people who have actually done the key things are not me. Uh, God is very good at making quite, making quite sure it's his work and not your work. But you can see the fruit of the word of God. If you live a long life, you soon see the results of all these things, or some of them anyhow, mm-hmm. enough to keep you going. Mm-hmm. Well, would you just close us by speaking directly perhaps to those who are uh, seeking to become better teachers of God's, God's word, to just give us a word of direction and encouragement yes. as we invest ourselves in the work. Right. Well, the great thing, uh, my dear friends, is that God has spoken. That's the thing we believe, isn't it? And if God has spoken, it means that we have to speak. In other words, God speaking t- gives us the pattern for as to how his revelation is going to come into the world. Not only how his revelation is going to come into the world, but how his regeneration is going to come into individual lives. It's by the word of God that we know and understand. It's by the word of God that we're changed, the power of God to salvation. So if God is giving you a desire to speak, uh, thank God for it. Test it against other people. They will tell you if yours is 
the gift that's needed, the time that you have, and so on, and realize it's the greatest privilege in the world just to speak a word for Jesus Christ. It may be to a tiny class, it may be to a group of people, it may be to one person, but it may be in the end to a congregation. Thank God for that privilege if it is yours. And there will be fruit. There will be fruit. Thank you so much, Dick Lucas, for sharing with us about the character and commitments of a person who teaches God's word. I'm so grateful for I'm I'm grateful for this time today, but I I am grateful for your lifetime of ministry that has borne fruit in my own life. Mm. So thank you for that. All by the grace of God, isn't it? Yes, we're grateful. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books, and tracts, including expositional preaching by David Helm, which features many of the lessons he learned from Dick Lucas, our guest today. You can learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.